Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, as we read verses 14 to 23. Hear now the word of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's call out to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, this passage takes us into the pains of a man who was utterly helpless and unable on his own to save his son. Would you remind us that like this man, we also are helpless. And like his son, we also are needy. And truly, Lord, only your son has the answer to our deepest needs. Help us to see it. Open our eyes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things, if you use our bulletin to to follow along and you don't have a Bible open, then sometimes you need a little bit of a reminder what came before. The whole text isn't there, just today's passage. And if you let your eyes drift upward, you will remember that last week we saw the transfiguration of Jesus as Jesus was on the mountain. And so these words, when it first begins, it says, when they came to the crowd, what it's telling us is they came down from the mountain seeing the most magnificent thing that any of them had ever seen before. And they came down and the first thing that happens is this. It's this incredible moment, this This moment, think about what just happened before this. Peter comments, it's good for us to be here. This is literally a mountaintop moment for Peter and the disciples. And no sooner do Jesus and the disciples have this literal mountaintop experience, but they come back down to earth, also literally, and they are immediately confronted with the brutality and agony of living in a cursed and fallen creation once again. So the the transfiguration takes place. It took place, but it was never meant to be the conclusion of Jesus's ministry. Things were not meant to end on the mountain, right? Uh, Jesus's glory has been seen, but Jesus still has more work to do. Jesus still has a mission to fulfill. And so today, let's let's descend from the mountain together with Jesus and his friends this morning uh, with three points. First, the fallen world. Second, the faithless generation. And then third, the faithful one. Uh, The first point is the fallen world. Think about this for a moment. 
They come down, and the first thing Matthew tells us about is this man kneeling before Jesus, and he is begging him for help. It's the first thing that we see Jesus encountering after his transfiguration is the sad tale of this boy and his suffering. And if you want to know how he's suffering, you just listen to his father. This man describes what happens, and and it is hard for your heart not to go out to this boy, and it's hard for your heart not to go out to this father. He describes it like this. He has epileptic seizures and suffers terribly, terribly. Now, I have no experience with epileptic seizures. I don't have any family members who do, but I was very struck in my own research online when it came to epilepsy. I came across the story of a man named Derek, and he was sharing the story of of his own struggles with epilepsy. And uh, Derek described how it wasn't even just the seizures that, that shook and stiffened his body that were so horrible, but it was the time leading up to the seizures, which he found so absolutely terrifying. And after a while, Derek said that he, he could tell he was about to have a seizure. He could tell that it was coming. And even that was terrifying to him, knowing that he was about to have this seizure, that his, the muscles in his body were about to lock up and he was going to be unable to control himself for an unknown period of time and not even really understand what's going on. And he also said that after his seizures, he would be in so much pain for days. He said it felt like he was surrounded by people who were just kicking and, and beating him. And then the days afterward, it felt like his whole body had to recover. And then perhaps even more despairing for him was going to doctors and asking them if they have some medical way of stopping it and hearing them say no. I mean, this is now present day that this man is living. See, the fear of having the seizure and then not being able to control or predict the seizure was a part of his suffering. And I just want to read to you something that Derek said. He described it like this. He said, he said, even now to this day, just before I have a seizure, the symptoms I have, it always feels like it's going to be my last breath, like I am going to pass away. It's just that traumatic and you never get used to it. That's the scary thing. You never get used to it. To this day, it is the scariest thing that I ever witnessed. And so I think that Derek would resonate with the father's description of his son. He suffers terribly. It's so bad that it seems to come on very quickly. It comes on without warning. This is a young man who can't be near water. It's a young man who can't be near fires without being in danger. And, you know, in our own day, if, if I was to tell you, you can't be near an open fire, you'd be like, fine, right? It's not going to impact many of our lives very much, except maybe if we go on a camping trip. Like, how often do we actually get near open fires? But in the first century, that's how you eat. That's how you stay warm. And he can't do those things. And so it sounds like this young man really cannot even be left alone. He can't can't function on his own. It it is incredibly sad. Now notice that we hear nothing about the demonic up until Jesus speaks in verse 18. And that's quite a ways into 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 the passage. Up until verse 18, the father doesn't mention a demon. The disciples don't mention a demon. Um, They may have an indication this is demonic in nature, but only Jesus addresses the demonic nature of these seizures. 
Now, I, I sort of hinted that, at this already, but I am struck by what a letdown this must have been for Jesus to, to come down from the mountain. And he didn't bring all the disciples with him. He, he left the rest. He only brought three with him. And, and he comes down from the mountain and he, he reenters this fallen order of things the way that he does here. And I think we briefly mentioned that the, that the transfiguration reminds us of Moses' time on Mount Sinai, how he came down with his face glowing and the Shekinah of God's glory on Moses' face was so incredible that he had to wear a veil over his face. But it's not just that. The similarities, similarities to Moses don't end there because if you remember, Moses was on Sinai. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, what does he find? He finds sin among the people. He finds it... He's incredibly discouraged and he is distressed to go from this, again, mountaintop moment, literally, to be, uh, and he's surrounded by the holiness of God and he's, he's seen his law and he's read his law and he goes back to the Israelites to deliver his law to these, to these people and he finds them making idols and inventing their own ways of worshiping God. It would be like, it would be like taking a restful, relaxing, cleansing shower and then immediately stepping out into the middle of a pig farm. That's, that's Jesus, right? Jesus has just been transfigured. He's heard the voice of his father. And then Jesus come downs and he comes down and he reenters the thorns and thistles of the frustrating work in a thorny world. The cursed creation that has suffered ever since the time of Adam is still troubled and here... Jesus is experiencing it all again. And he may be very God of very God and very man, but because he is man, he doesn't get to be exempt from the misery. It's still part of his life. Jesus lived in this fallen world, right? Jesus didn't just hover above it. He didn't just observe it. He wasn't distant from it. Instead, he lived in it with all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the temptation that living in this fallen world comes with. Uh, the, way that, the way that Paul puts it in Philippians is that Jesus lived here voluntarily entering into the suffering. Even though he had a right to the privileges of the Son of God, he didn't grasp onto those rights. Instead, he humbled himself and he suffered and he humbled himself all the way to the cross. Of all of the religions out there, Christianity stands head and shoulders above them all because in scripture we see God enter in and suffer as a part of the creation in the person of the son. The purpose of his coming was to bear our sin. Because of our sin, we need a savior who is both man so that he could suffer and God so that his suffering is for sin is infinitely valuable. In other words, Jesus is the sacrifice that we needed. And, and even now, even today, even this moment, you can trust him with your sin. You can turn your life over to him. You can surrender to him. You can follow him. You can be a disciple of Jesus. Any of us can do that. We start right now. And as Charlie was highlighting as we were going through the liturgy, it's an ongoing thing. So maybe you, maybe some time ago you made a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus, and maybe that's slowed down, or maybe somehow that's been set aside as a priority in your life. It is never too late, until it's too late, to start following Jesus and say, I'm going to follow him again. I'm going to keep it up. I'm going to take this seriously. I'm his disciple. I'm not just a casual observer, but I am actually 
a follower of Christ. Now, second, I, I want us to see this passage shows us Jesus' frustration with the faithless generation. You see his lament there. Um, you know, after he's told about this boy suffering, the father mentions one very important piece of information. He says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Um, he tattled on them, right? <laughs> he, he, he told Jesus, I, your disciples had plenty of time with me. There were nine of them and they couldn't do it. Now this, this in, in other words, it looks like this happened while Jesus is on the mountain with Peter and James and John. They've had their opportunity. And then Jesus immediately responds. He gives his thoughts on the disciples' failure. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You might wonder, who is Jesus so frustrated with here? Is he frustrated with the child for being sick? Is it the man for bringing his child? Or maybe he's frustrated with the world in general for being such a fallen place. Well, Well, look, first we get a broad answer. And then maybe a more specific answer in a moment. But in verse 17, he says his frustration is with this faithless and twisted generation. Um, so in, in a broad sense, then, you know, start, start, the problem starts wide, right? He's saying that these people at this time when he is living are a source of frustration to him. He is like a, he's like a gardener who does brilliant work, but the thorns and thistles keep coming up faster than he can remove them. Um, look how he describes the generation. He uses a word here. The word in Greek is apistis. And it, you know, if you wanted to do a really clumsy translation of that word, it would be no faith. Uh, pistis is faith and ah, you stick that ah prefix before there and it means not. So you are a no faith generation. You're a no, you're a no faith. You are a faithless generation. And then he uses the word diastrepho. And if you translate that, in the ESV, the word here is twisted. And then if you look at the way the word gets used in other places, the idea here is of an object that comes out of failure in the hands of a clumsy workman. And so basically anything I try to build. This is why no one asks me to fix things. No one asks me to... <laughs> when someone's car breaks, breaks down, no one calls Adam. Um, and there is a reason for that because anything I try does in fact come out twisted. It's not what it should be. It's all wrong. Um, Jesus says, that's this generation. That's what these people are like. It's something supposed to be one way, but it's warped or it's changed from what it's supposed to be. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a friend on a road trip and he knew that, knew that I collected records and so he saw a band live and he asked me, hey, Adam, do you want me to buy you this record for this band? And he said, I can get it autographed. And I was like, that's cool. Please do. I would love to pay you back for that record. And so he bought me the record and he got it autographed and then he kept it in his car all summer long. Uh, he traveled across the country and a few months later he saw me. And he said, you're going to love this. It's beautiful. And he handed me the record. And I was like, wow, you got their autographs. This is fantastic. And then uh, I'm, the, I'm not a collector who just looks at the records. I play my records. And so I get the record out and I look at the sleeve and I say, this is going to be great. And I pull it out. And it looks like somebody just took a hairdryer to the thing for like an hour it had sat in the sun and melted, and it looked more like a piece of abstract art. Um, 
It was diastrepho. It was it was warped and and twisted and useless. So now it's it's only good for the autographs at this point, right? That's how Jesus sees this generation. And it it's upsetting to him. It is upsetting to see this generation so twisted. Jesus is upset at this faithless and warped generation. Which is part of the answer to who he's angry with, right? He's angry with this generation. He says so. We need to take him at face value. But we also need to find out, we find out a more specific answer when we get to verse 19. Because the disciples want to do a post-game huddle with Jesus. Why couldn't we do it? You know, they don't ask in front of everybody. They ask later, why? what went wrong? Why did it not work? And Jesus' answer is, not because of this generation's little faith. He says, because of your little faith. So he gets more specific than just the generation, right? He doesn't, he doesn't blame it on society's lack of faith. You can't pass the blame to them, disciples. It's not even the scribes and Pharisees' lack of faith necessarily. In this situation, it comes down to the disciples' lack of faith. If this is a blame that can't be passed, it can't be laid at someone else's feet. This is their problem. Now, what he said before is still true. This is an unfaithful generation. But we see, in, in other words, that the unfaithfulness and the unbelief of the generation becomes a part of his own people's lack of faith and his own people's lack of being untwisted. That doesn't sound good. How does Jesus see their unbelief? Part of the answer is in their ineffectiveness of their efforts, right? It, it doesn't work. They can't do it. They can't heal this kid. The demon remains no matter what they do. But there could be other signs of their unbelief. You know, and one of the things you might ask is, what were they trying? If, they're not, if they don't have faith, then what are they trying in order to cast out these demons? Um, I'm going to mention one possibility. It doesn't come from the text, so I won't lean on it, and uh, I'm not going to make a point out of it except to just simply mention it as a possibility. We know from the historical record that Jewish rabbis in the first century employed use of magical items. I think that's the right word for this. They would use an amulet, which contained powerful written formulas um, or made with magical roots to cure epilepsy. So there were efforts made in the first century by Jewish rabbis to cure epilepsy. Um, In other words, first century Jews, we don't know that it was all of them, but we know that these means were employed. They would do something, employ some kind of traditional folk magic to do something that should have been and should have belonged to the work of God. This would help us at least make some sense of why Jesus seems to be complaining more broadly in a way that sounds like he's talking about his disciples and he's talking about the world around them. Um, Traditional Jewish folk medicine may have exerted an influence on the disciples. And and Jesus is distressed because their own unbelief ends up being an impact on his followers, right? Think about it. The unbelief of the generation is where he first states his complaint and then he gets more specific and says, you guys should have been better. You guys know better. You follow me. You don't follow them. And see, this seems to be the real problem. The disciples deploy all the tools that they know how, whatever that might have been, and yet they neglected that one essential truth. This is the Father's world, 
and demons come out by God's power, not by any other means, not by magic or some scientific series of maneuvers. I think one lesson we might learn is an interesting one. The, the book of James warns us of a faith that is without works. We were familiar with that warning, a faith that's without works. In other words, a faith that doesn't show itself in action. Uh, we talk the talk and we don't walk the walk, right? James warns us about that. You know, we say we believe, but you'd never know it by how we live or what we do. But there's also a such thing as works without faith, right? There's faith without works. And there's works without faith. And this seems to be what happens here. They, they try, they struggle, they do their best, but the demon stays put. And then Jesus says why it doesn't work. He said, you did this in unbelief. You did works without faith. You did works without faith. You know, sometimes we, we act and work and try to accomplish something, but we work and act because deep down we don't believe God is the one who's at work. We think we're alone in this. We need to take the bull by its horns. We need to, we need to manipulate this situation to, to the, best, the best that we possibly can. We think that it's our job to propel ourselves along and make all of these things happen. So there is the danger of faith without works, but there's a danger of works without faith. And that seems to be, that's the disciples here because they're being warned about their faithlessness. They did works, they did something and it didn't work, but they still did it. And Jesus says they had no faith. Now don't misunderstand, uh, it is not wrong that they did something. It's not wrong that they took action in general, whatever that ultimately was. Certainly don't hear me saying that medicine is wrong or that doctors using their skill to perform surgery is wrong. Uh, don't hear me saying that Jesus is opposed to medicine or opposed to secondary uh, methods of, of approaching uh, sickness. We know that it's not faithless to take action to heal. Part of the way we know that is, for example, in one of Jesus' stories. Jesus lauds the Good Samaritan, but the Good Samaritan in the story does all sorts of things to bring healing to the man, right? He, he binds up the man's wounds. He pours oil and wine on. He, he sets him on an animal. He takes him to an inn. He knows that he needs physical rest. In other words, the Samaritan uses secondary means to heal. So it's not faithless to use secondary means like medicine to heal someone. Because if it was, then Jesus would have faulted the Samaritan for that. But medicine and healing is not what the Jews were doing in the first century. They were employing magic, not prayer. They were not exercising faith in God. They were trying to manipulate the will of God by using superstitious means. And so what I'm saying is that the Jews of their day tried to use magic. And it's not impossible that the disciples had seen the methods of the day and found themselves coming up empty if they tried it. Whatever they did try... We know from Jesus that they were trying it apart from faith. They were trying it apart from faith in God's power. They weren't calling upon God in prayer. What is that called? It's called being wise in your own eyes. It's called leaning on your own strength and understanding. No wonder Jesus is so distressed by the unbelief of this generation. It is impacting even his own followers. It wouldn't be hard for us to think upon the fact that the unbelief of the world around us certainly, certainly can have an impact on the church too. You know, Jesus expects unbelief in the world. He is distressed by faithlessness among his people. 
God's word doesn't warn us against unbelief just because it's generically out there. We're warned about unbelief because it is a problem for us. It is very, very natural, very easy to look at other people and say, there's the faithlessness over there. I see the the people doing that over there. Let's steer clear of those folks, right? That's an easy approach for us to take. You know, we we watch the news, we get frustrated. The world around us is not exactly a shining beacon of light. It's often grim and dark and frustrating. But there's a sense in which that's expected, right? Of course, the world apart from Christ lives in darkness. It's our own unbelief that's distressing to God. What really upsets Jesus here is the unbelief among his own people. Think about this for a minute. They are really, there are really obvious types of unbelief in churches that it would be easy for me to pick on. I could point to liberalizing denominations and churches that are compromising on obvious biblical doctrines. That's an easy, low-hanging fruit type of unbelief that's among churches. Uh, And to be honest, that's tempting for me because it's a, a safe criticism to make. It doesn't really pose much of a threat to me or any of us. In fact, if we're honest, that sort of critique feels good because then it sort of allows us to congratulate ourselves. And if we keep it at that level where we just sort of talk about everybody else, we feel very safe. But we need to think in more personal terms. How is unbelief in our midst? It's not just large-scale, big unbelief that others are introducing into the church. We need to deal with our own faithlessness. And that's too personal for me to be able to go around and and identify in every single case. Most of our spiritual lives are not fought in a big denomination-wide battle. Most of the spiritual conflict that we engage in happens in little daily skirmishes in our lives that nobody sees but us and that nobody else would even find interesting. Faithlessness happens when we choose self-indulgence over faithfulness to God and to our families, right? That's not going to make headlines. Nobody's going to write a blog about us doing that. Faithlessness looks like when we harbor anger and hatred towards brothers or sisters without reconciling. Faithlessness looks like when we choose a thousand other distractions and entertainments over the Lord and his service. So small that you wouldn't even think to tell someone about it. You name it, we've done it, we do it. These temptations are all around us. They surround us like, like a gas. We, we breathe them in and they are in such small doses that maybe we don't even smell it and don't realize it. We still wrestle with greed and lust and idolatry, right? These are still present struggles for us. Faithlessness and sin are a clear and present danger to us. They don't just come from outside of us. They come from within us. John says that if we're in denial about that, that we're not even Christians. He says that if we say we're without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So so faithlessness is at our own doorstep. It's not on all the other doorsteps. It's on our doorstep. And it's, it's in the house. So we don't have to go out in search of villains. There is a villain right here within our own heart. We do have faithless hearts. We don't measure up to the standards of Christ. And our own faith is often far too weak. My point in saying this is not to tear us down as a people 
My point in saying this is not to discourage us. My, the point is not supposed to be despair and certainly not giving up. You know, it, it shouldn't mean that, well, we just stop caring. We just check out, right? It means that we have reason to weekly, daily, hourly keep running into the arms of Jesus. See, this reality is why Paul says that we should be daily putting on the armor of God's word and seeking to live by the spirit. Not because there's no hope, because there is hope. I mean, think of the best words in the whole passage are when Jesus says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. What's our hope? Well, if if I answer that, I'll risk spoiling the third point, but we're there. so, So why not? The answer is Jesus who says, Bring him to me, right? The, the hope is not in the, us and the, the hope is not in the unfaithful generation. The hope is not in any of the unfaithful people in the story. It's in the one who was faithful, Jesus Christ. You know, the first way you start to see this is that the man himself knows who he can go to. Clearly, it's not the disciples, right? He, he's got to go to Jesus. That's why he throws all his hope on Christ alone. And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. That's where his hope is. He goes where his faith is. He goes to Jesus. But then in verse 17, Jesus says those words, bring him to me. He rebukes the demon. The demon leaves the boy and the boy is healed. This is where we need to camp out. This is the answer right here. He was found in the world, walking among the problems, living among the pain, feeling the pain himself. The answer is Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. If you want to understand the heart of Jesus, you of course can look at his compassion. You can look at his actions. You can look at the way he poured himself out for people. But there is nothing better than looking at his own words. In verse 20, he gives a lesson to us if we're willing to hear it. About what faithfulness looks like. So they asked the question, why could we not cast it out? And here's his answer in verse 20. He says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So at the end here, Jesus gives his disciples a lesson in faith. And this is, boy, is this an easy one to misinterpret. It happens all the time. Uh, Many within the bounds of Christianity teach something like this, that the purpose of faith is to give you power. And so if you have a lot of faith, then by, by, by all the logic you could think of, then you have a lot of power or you can do a lot of miracles. And yet Jesus here actually speaks against the idea that the more faith you have, the more power you have. It's not the case that the more faith you have, the more power you have. Look at this. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move and it will move. So he is not calling for a lot of faith. He is not calling for great faith. He is not calling for us to become powerful in the faith. Um, Many Christians read this. They think faith is is a power they need to try to increase so they can move the mountains in their lives, right? Um. I was exposed to this as a kid. In my house, there were many Kenneth Copeland books and audio series uh, around the house. And I remember Kenneth Copeland teaching Christians that real faith looks like being able to speak. And with our words, we create events in the world around us, right? Speak wealth into your life and wealth will come. Speak health into your life. And if you have enough faith, then you'll be healthy and it'll happen. 
And of course, we know what that means if we aren't healthy. And we know what that must mean if we aren't wealthy. You see, what was being taught there is a misreading of a verse like this, isn't it? It's incredibly unbiblical. It's spiritually destructive to tell someone you are sick because you don't have faith. It takes the focus off of God and it makes it all about you. There's no sense in this false teaching that we're meant to cry out to God in our need, but ultimately rest in his goodness and in his wisdom. We sang hymn number 128, God moves in a mysterious way. It's our God who moves in a mysterious way. It's our God whose world this is. I would say that worldview cannot sing song number 128. It's a misreading of God's word. Uh, the name for this view is the Word of Faith Movement. It's, sadly, it's being exported from America all over the world, and especially into the Southern Hemisphere. And it's a, an approach that sees God as an object meant to give things that we want. And God becomes a means to an end instead of the one that we are supposed to find our rest and all of our hope in. It treats God like a genie. That isn't faith, that's magic. That's trying to harness the supernatural to accomplish my own end. And it makes the world the way I want it to be instead of the way God wants it to be. That isn't faith, it's superstition and it's magic, which God's word explicitly forbids. Jesus sets the model. Jesus sets the model in verse 22. He could have been powerful. He could have exercised all his rights. He could have overcome by force. He could have done anything. And yet he tells his disciples once again, I'm about to be delivered over and killed and raised up. You see, it's not about power. The one that has the most possible faith that you could possibly imagine says it's not about power. It's about love and self-sacrifice. See, we need to think in a healthy way about faith. Jesus is not saying that faith is a force to be controlled or manipulated or used. In fact, if you try to exercise faith like that, and if you try to exercise faith for that reason, you won't accomplish what you're trying, but you will succeed in becoming more self-centered instead of God-centered. Instead of asking the question, what is God at work doing in this world? We ask the question, what do I want the world to be like? And we try to shape it that way. That's not faith. Faith is a resting and receiving. It's not a working and empowering, right? The point is for the disciples to see themselves in the hands of the powerful one and to submit to the one who is in charge of the world. And in this case, Jesus says they didn't, they didn't, and they seem to have been so faithless in how they approached this problem that they didn't even have a tiny ounce of faith. Jesus is saying, you did, he's not saying you just needed a little more faith. He's saying you needed faith, period. They had none. He's not, he's not demanding. He does not require greatness of you. He does not require greatness from you. He just asks you to trust him. Just a little bit. Jesus is welcoming weak faith here. Jesus says, all you need is a mustard seed of faith. So he is not saying, imagine how much you can do. Imagine how much power you can have if you had even more than a mustard seed. That is so upside down. Jesus is saying, you don't need great faith to be my disciple. You just need me. Think of where his focus is. His focus is on... God who moves the mountain. The, the, faith, the, the, the emphasis here is on the object of our faith, not on the quality or the quantity of our faith. 
In fact, he's saying the quantity of our faith is irrelevant, even as small as a mustard seed. That means how much faith we have is irrelevant as long as it exists. You don't have to trust a lot. You don't have to be a model of faithfulness. Jesus is the model of faithfulness. You just need need a great savior. Do you ever get stuck navel gazing? You know that phrase, navel gazing, staring at your own belly button, right? Am I enough? Am I behaving enough? Am I trusting enough? Do I have enough faith? Something's wrong with me, right? And Jesus is at once immensely comforting those with weak faith. And he's also reprimanding those who have no faith. His disciples are no faith people here. They're not little faith people here. They're no faith people here. And that is what's so painful on the one hand about what Jesus is implying here. Because the implication is that the disciples in this instance didn't even have a tiny grain's worth of faith in God. Because if they had, they as his apostles could have seen God do something extraordinary for this boy. It is painful for the disciples to hear this. But on the other hand, it's a very, there is a very gracious reminder here, isn't there? Because I guarantee you, every person in this room struggles with faith. We all struggle with weak faith. For some of us, it comes in seasons. For some people, it's an ongoing struggle. For others, it's just, a, 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 it feels like a way of life. But we all struggle with weakness and we all struggle with seasons of lethargy and complacency and seeking comfort instead of exercising trust. And so this morning, what I hope you see from this, this passage is that even if your faith is weak, if the object of your faith is the Savior, you have the same security as the saint whose faith is like an iron vice. Because it is not the quantity of your faith, it is the Savior who saves. See, our great need is for God to be at work and for God to act as Savior and Redeemer, not us. This is why we pray, because we are needy. And we pray out of our need, not out of our strength. We pray in faith, because if something is going to happen, then it is God who has to do it. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you do not require great faith of us. You simply call us to rest in you and receive you. Help us to rest in Christ himself, of course, but help us also to live in submission to your will for our lives and to remember that it is you who moves the mountains. This is not our world. This is your world. They are your mountains. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.